0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our series walking through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, and here the guys will be discussing chapters 18 and 19 on the New World and the course of history. As always, we do invite you to check out those links down there in the show notes. We have a course coming up in a couple of weeks with Peter Lightheart on the Apostle Paul, which is still open for registration. And also upcoming, we have another regional course here in Birmingham, as well as our summer conference and our summer feast. And all upcoming Theopolis events can be found down there in the show notes. We really hope that you've enjoyed the series walking through Through New Eyes, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing the concluding chapters
1: of Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Brian Modes is recording and we will edit and smooth everything out so that it can come into your out to our outlets and you can listen to it without uh, cringing uh, without cringing as much at least since Brian's taken out the infelicities of the recording. We are coming to the end of a series of podcasts on James Jordan's book Through New Eyes Developing a Biblical Biblical View of the World. Uh, in this episode, we're going to cover the last two chapters, uh, chapter 18, which deals with the new covenant era, the new world that comes with Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, and then we're going to talk uh, a bit about the very a fairly short final chapter where Jim summarizes things and then reflects on the course of history and thinks about the ways that his uh, overview of the of biblical history gives us insight into understanding the shape and the order. Of church history and of history following Jesus. This chapter is another one where Jim's approach, overall approach to scripture, I think is really valuable. Uh, I think that's true of every chapter of the book, but I think this is one where you you can see that the approach very distinctly. And uh, I get it, get it, get it the point I want to make by raising the question of how do we distinguish the old from the new covenant? What's the difference between the two? And clearly, we're supposed to distinguish those. We have various indications in the New Testament that there is there is an Old Covenant and there's a New Covenant. There's a first and a second. There's the law, and then there's the reign of grace that follows the law. So there are various ways that the, the New Testament uh, explains the distinctions. But trying to pinpoint exactly what's different about them becomes difficult when you try to get down to details. So you said, you know, well, the coming of, this, coming of the Spirit is a key to the coming of the New Covenant but David had the spirit and the spirit came on the prophets and the spirit was active from the beginning of creation. So yeah, maybe there is something I believe distinctive about what the spirit does in the new covenant, but just saying it's the work of the spirit is not sufficient. You could say, well, it's because Gentiles are now being saved. That's the great new thing in the old Testament. God was just concerned about Israel and the Jews, but in the new covenant he's concerned about the whole world and he's bringing the whole world into his kingdom. But uh, Jim emphasizes and we've emphasized throughout our studies in Through New Eyes that the Gentiles are having contact with Israel from the beginning. Uh, Every phase of uh, the covenant in the Old Testament, every phase of the Old Covenant has some kind of relationship and some kind of connection with the Gentiles. And increasingly, Israel has contact with the Gentiles. We talked in the last episode about how the exile Although a judgment against Israel for her idolatries and injustices is also a blessing to the world because Jews get scattered out to the Gentile world. They scatter scatter out into the Eastern Mediterranean and elsewhere. And they bring their scriptures and they bring their knowledge of God right to the Gentiles' doorstep. They're right next door to the Gentiles, and they're seeking the peace of the cities that they're they go uh, that they go to in, in the exile. So it's not the Gentiles are outside, complete outsiders in the old covenant. So, you'd have to specify. It's not just the Gentiles are coming in. Something more specific is happening uh, with the Gentiles. And I, th- I think where I think Jim's approach is valuable is the emphasis he places throughout the book on the shifting, the changing structures of the covenantal order. Uh, there's a different symbolic order in each phase of the covenant, there's a different uh, organization of the people of God in terms of their social order and the structures of authority that changes over the course of time. There's a different symbolic order, the tabernacle and the temple where you go back to the beginning, we have the garden and then the patriarchal oases and then the tabernacle and then the temple and then the visionary visionary temple of Ezekiel uh, and the second temple that somehow represents that visionary temple. Uh, And then you come into the phase of the new covenant and you have a different kind of temple order. So when you start thinking in those structural terms, then you can start identifying more concretely and more obviously the ways that the Old Covenant differs from the New. For example, there's the whole arrangement of space and uh, place that existed in the Old Testament is now radically transformed. Throughout the Old Testament, only priests were allowed to go into the presence of God, uh, directly into the presence of God, into the throne room of God in the most holy place. Only the high priest was able to do that. And that was only, of course, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Only priests were allowed to work in the temple. Um... If you were uh, unclean, you couldn't even come into the temple courts, so you had to be cleansed. That whole order of things has been radically transformed. I don't want to say that it's been eliminated because I think there are uh, there's a transformed there is a transformed order of holiness and purity that the New Testament talks about. But that's been radically transformed. There aren't any th- these gradations of holiness. We don't have to stay out of the presence of God. In fact, the book of Hebrews says the opposite. We not only come boldly, uh, into the into the sanctuary, but we come boldly into the heavenly sanctuary because we are in Christ and joined to Christ and we can we can enter the not a copy, but the original. We're in heavenly places in Christ. Uh, and uh, all of the restrictions as far as uh, the bodily processes that cause uncleanness, those are no longer applicable. Uh, the food laws that would make a, a person unclean that make him unacceptable to uh, to come into the courts of the Lord all those things are eliminated because Jesus has cleansed the world and the world is no longer bringing this curse on humanity. So if you start looking at those structural things then that I think that gives a concreteness to the to the order of the new covenant that I think is can be lacking in other approaches. And it also I think helps you see how pervasive the change is in the new covenant. Uh, one of the one of the things that uh, uh, I, I probably picked this up from Jim, but I've I've said over the years you know, the fact that we go into the church and we wear shoes, we're in the presence. We claim to be in the presence of God when we when we assemble as the church. Jesus is there. The glory of the Lord is present, uh, and yet we're wearing shoes, which is not something that anybody did in the Old Testament. That simple that simple practice, which we take so much for granted is an indicator of how radically things have changed from the old to the new. And of course, not everyone is willing to wear shoes into the presence of their God. Uh, if you go into a mosque, you have to remove your shoes to go into the sacred places of the mosque. And other religions have that maintained that kind of, that kind of uh, sacred order that existed in the old covenant. So I think that it's not only you can get a concrete understanding of what the difference is, but you can also get a, uh, it s- shows how pervasive it is. One, one last thing I would say, this can sound like it's a so what? It looks like a superficial change. So now you can go places you couldn't go before. what what's the big deal? Why did that take Jesus going to the cross to make it possible for you to go places you couldn't go before? And I think that that's that's a misreading of the of the way the Old Covenant was ordered. The Old Covenant was ordered the way it was because humanity was in a the condition that it was. Humanity was still in Adam. Humanity was under the curse. Uh, And by Jesus, the last Adam, because of the Jesus, the last Adam has gone to the cross and he's delivered us from the curse. That changes life, the way life is lived at all kinds of, in uh, in fundamental ways and superficial ways, it, it transforms everything we're doing. So it's not at all superficial, those kinds of arrangements. And this is the point that Jim is making throughout the book. Those kind of covenantal arrangements are really fundamental to the way that the people of God was organized and the way the world worked in different phases of the new covenant. So those those concrete and, and uh, very uh, everyday kinds of changes are, uh, are deeply significant.
2: Your list, Peter, of, of discontinuities, continuities, that's huge. Um, it's one of the things that you get from reading Jim and reading this book as you begin to reevaluate the kinds of dichotomies that you've uh, either been taught or you've just formulated in your own mind about the difference between the old and the new Testament. And you realize that there's a lot of continuity also. It's like with the coming of Jesus and the apostles, it's not the beginning of justification by faith (laughs) that goes all the way back to Abraham. It's not the beginning of, you know, people being saved by God's grace and not by works. And also the shift from the old to the new is not about, well, the old was just full of rituals And the new, you know, no more rituals, you know, you'd have direct immediate kind of contact with God. No, there's still rituals, but they're just different rituals. And so often we have been, we come up with these very simplistic ways of describing the difference between the old and the new. And those kinds of things don't allow us then to appropriate wisely from the old, all the wisdom that's there, all the instruction that's there for us because it's too easy just to, to uh, relegate that to the past. But as you see, the New Testament authors are using all these books, the Torah, the Psalms, the prophets, using them in wise and appropriate ways since the coming of Jesus. It helps us appreciate, helps us learn how to apply what was old into the new situation. Even though much has changed, there's still a lot that's still
3: the same yeah that that seems a very helpful way of thinking about it jeff if we make this very sharp distinction between new and old then it can be very difficult for us to take the right messages from the uh mosaic law let's say because we think it's talking about such a different situation that how do you possibly apply it today um and it does strike me as significant that some of these things that we've um uh, mentioned so Peter was talking particularly about the um way in which rather than having kind of distinct layers of um kind of purity and priestly orders and and, and so forth um you know that that has gone to a large extent in the new covenant and, and surely that's prefigured in uh, Jeremiah's only own definition of it um uh, where are we they they will no longer. Should each one teaches neighbor and each his brother uh, saying no the lord they will all know me from the least to the greatest you know sh- surely um uh this concept of a new priesthood is is building on that again you know jeremiah mentions doesn't he i will forgive their iniquity i will remember their sin no more well we could say there's always been forgiveness and there has been always been forgiveness and yet there seems to be a sense in which it's baked into the new covenant in a way that it wasn't baked into previous covenants um it's often said isn't it that the old covenant had a means of forgiveness and but it didn't really you know i mean if you go through the sacrifices the vast majority of them possibly all of them are for what we would term kind of Uh, ceremonial impurity rather than anything else. And and yet David could be forgiven of things like murder and adultery. And there was no sacrifice for that in the Old Testament. There was no, if you have murdered someone, then present X, Y, and Z on on the altar kind of thing. So the system of forgiveness must have always been somehow separate from the um, Mosaic law. And yet now it's here present, kind of baked into the very, fabric of the new covenant which is is a difference and yet it seems to be a a, perhaps a difference of of nuance rather than anything else and when we're familiar
4: with the old testament it becomes very clear that many things that are declared to be novel and um distinctive to the new testament are actually just elements of the Old Testament. So, for instance, the two great commandments, that's from the Old Testament, or the teaching that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, is very much what you find within Old Testament teaching if you reflect upon it deeply. There are many of these parts which are seen to be distinctive, the principle of love, whatever it is, that in the New Testament come into their full expression, but were always there in the past. I think this is one of the issues when we're reading scripture, it's very easy to have this sort of idea of the Old Testament as a divine flannel graph presenting some spiritual truths that we can now um, see in their full reality, not just as images, but we've got the type and now we've got the reality. But yet Paul can talk about the events of the Old Testament as events within which Christ was active, um, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, that's exp- expressing the experience of the Israelites in terms of a Christian right. Or think about the way he talks about they all drank the same spiritual drink and the rock that followed them was Christ, or they tempted Christ in the wilderness. It seems that in Paul's mind, there is a deep continuity between these two covenant orders and not the sort of opposition that we often present. And so the ways that we understand the tabernacle, of the way that we understand sacrificial worship, the way that we understand the new covenant treatment of these things has to all occur in light of that understanding of the fundamental continuity of God's
2: work in Old and New Testament. True. And yet, at the same time, Alistair, I know you'll agree with this. This is part of the subtlety of uh, these dis- distinction between Old and New, is when Paul in Hebrews 11 goes through this, you know, hall hall of fame of faith or whatever you want to call it. In the end, he says, all of these, you know, from Adam and Abel all the way up through all these uh, great men, faithful men, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or made mature. It's surprising to read statements like that and to recognize the, uh, the, the enormous privilege we have of living in this new world under the lordship of Jesus. And not just looking forward as they did to something that was uh, something that they could not see. But now, of course, Jesus has been seen. Uh, Yahweh in the flesh has been handled and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And so that concrete reality is ours and theirs as well with us. Somewhat surprising statement there, too, that they didn't even get what was promised until uh, united with us and, of course, united with Jesus. We get it all now.
1: I want to go back to a couple of comments that uh, James made about priesthood and sacrifice. On the priesthood side of things, you know, there's a there's definitely a new order of priesthood, and there's a, a sense of which, uh, instead of having this gradation of priesthood within a priestly people, all of Israel was priest; they were a priestly nation, and yet within that priestly people, you had these gradations of holiness and and different different kinds of priestly status, different different degrees of priestly status. That order of things is not doesn't pertain to the new covenant. All everyone is a priest, and everyone is a priest in the strong sense that Aaron was a priest. That is to say, everyone has access, has sanctuary access. We're all saints. There's still an order within the church, but it's not an order of access, and it's not an order of priestly uh, privilege or responsibility as it was in the Old Testament. But that is, that's anticipated by the first phase of the New Covenant that we talked about in the last episode. Jim points out that uh, during the period of exile and in uh, even after the restoration, with many Jews still scattered outside the land, there. Focus, their Community focus was not the temple but local synagogues which uh, are built all all through the eastern Mediterranean uh, and those are led not by Levites but by other Israelites any any Israelite has the has the uh potential to become a leader of a synagogue so there's a there's an elevation of priesthood that's going on in the first phase of the Old Covenant that's fulfilled even more greatly in the in the latter phase in the in the New Covenant that comes with Jesus and the spirit. The other thing I want to, the formulation that I would suggest for the, the forgiveness of sins and in connection with old Testament sacrifice. First of all, absolutely right. That the old Testament sacrifice did not achieve the forgiveness of sins. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Hebrews makes that clear, but then you also have statements in, in the, uh, in Leviticus, for example, that make it sound like the blood of bulls and goats is taking away sin, or at least it's, um, it's uh, delaying, somehow deferring judgment against sin. It's doing something to sin. And I think the, the way that uh, uh, I think is helpful to think about is that the blood of bulls and goats and all the sacrificial procedures aren't effective for the taking away of sins, except insofar as they're memorials of a coming sacrifice. Those Old Testament sacrifices are all uh, shadowy sacrifices. The true sacrifice is what happens at the cross. And insofar as the Old Testament sacrifices present a memorial ahead of time, as it were, a uh, an anticipatory memorial of the cross, to that extent, they're effective. But they aren't really effective because they're not effective in themselves. They're not effective apart from the uh, efficacy that Jesus' own death provides. But then that means that the Old Testament sacrifices are eff- effect- efficacious in something like the same way New Testament modes of sac- modes of forgiveness are efficacious, because, uh, you know, i if I lead a worship service I pronounce absolution after the confession of sins you are forgiven do I have authority to declare to forgive sins I have authority to declare the forgiveness of sins but what I'm declaring is based on what happened at the cross and so the cross is is, is the one event that takes away sin and you have old testament rituals that anticipate that uh, and and are efficacious because they're anticipating it uh new testament Rights and actions that are applying and accomplished, accomplished justification on the cross, uh, and therefore more efficacious. But I think obviously making the cross central to the whole explanation of how how forgiveness works, it has to be the cross at the center. And I think that's that's at least one way to to formulate the distinction. Yeah, Peter, that that's um, it's interesting because I, I
3: don't sort of disagree with that. At the same time, I wonder if there's something even more radically Different about it, insofar as if you go through what would trigger you to um, give to uh, go and offer a sacrifice in Leviticus, it's almost never something that we would consider to to be sin. And so, if you think of all the kind of things that we confess in prayer or on a Sunday morning before the Lord and, and ask for forgiveness. Almost none of those would actually have kind of corresponding sacrifices in Leviticus, and and so I kind of wonder if, um, yeah, I, I wonder if there's an, an, an even sharper
1: discontinuity there somewhere. Well, I guess I'm reading the Old Testament sacrifices uh, differently than that because the some of the some of the introductions I'm thinking of the sin or purification offering, the circumstances when they're offered are pretty general. So uh, this is uh, Leviticus four twenty seven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally, and that's I think that's chata probably, which has a variable meaning, but well, sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done. So that sounds like uh, that that's a, talking about violations of God's commandments, which sounds like we're in the realm of moral guilt and and defilement, and that's what's being addressed by the sacrifice. So I have thought about the uh, sacrifices as as claiming to deal with sin and not just with various forms of impurity. Although I think there is a there is a connection between sin and impurity in the Old Testament and there's a kind of moral impurity that's going on in the Old Testament that that uh, has to be reckoned in mm, right.
4: It's also important I think to consider the fact that for instance on the day of atonement the ritual includes the posture of the people in um just afflicting themselves and confessing their sins. There is some sort of um subjective um correlate to the objective right.
1: Right. And that's that's uh, yeah it's the, the people and also the high priest. The high priest confesses the sins of Israel over the scapegoat uh and then they're removed by the sins and uncleannesses of Israel uh they're removed by the scapegoat.
3: Right. And 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 yet even even those in Hebrews nine are um referred to as unintentional, aren't they, that kind of what the um day of atonement took away were unintentional sins. And so even there, there, there seems to be a uh, uh, i don't know I don't know quite how to phrase it, but a uh, an in an insufficiency of it in in some in some respect.
4: I think Hebrews also suggests that something like the Day of Atonement is a sort of proleptic enactment of what will really take away sins. But the whole emphasis upon almost all of the service of Israel taking place in the holy place, rather than in the most holy place or the holy of holies, is on account of the fact they've not truly entered into God's presence. There is that still, there's that continuing divide of sins not truly being dealt fully dealt with and the day of atonement is i think pointing forward to that eschatological dealing with sins in christ and so the emphasis of while the tabernacle is there while the sacrificial system is operative it's always anticipatory for its efficacy its efficacy is not internal to the system um which is one way I think to push back at some of the statements about having its own structure of forgiveness and dealing with sins. It does to an extent, but it has that as something that's looking beyond itself, and does not have that efficacy within itself.
1: One of the things that Jim highlights in uh, talking about the the, the uniqueness, of the newness of the new covenant, is the kind of new shape that revelation takes, and he's been he's been highlighting this throughout uh, Torah. Is uh, the characters the Mosaic era when you get to the when you get to the Davidic era and the monarchy that is transformed into wisdom, which uh, in, includes meditation on Torah day and night, but it's something that goes beyond simply application or simple obedience to a, an explicit command. Uh, and then you move into the Exilic and post Exilic era, and you have prophecy, which is uh, again a more elevated form of. Revelation and a more elevated form of discourse, and then the new covenant brings all of those to bear. But then add something, um, add something new uh, that Jim describes as paradox, and the, the paradoxical character of Jesus' teaching, paradoxical character of his uh, interventions into debates, the kind of paradoxical character of some of his uh, of his parables. Uh, I think also the, the paradoxical character of his teaching on the law. There's a, a fulfillment of the law that he commands thats that doesn't look like the fulfillment of the command. Uh, it is a fulfillment of the command, but it looks like something else. Or the, the, the paradox, the central paradox, which is the paradox of glory and shame. Jesus ascending on the cross, being lifted up on the cross, is an effort to expose him to shame. That's what the Romans intend. That's what the Jews intend. They want to kill him, but they also want to shame him by making a public display. And yet that very act of making a public display is uh, the elevation of Jesus, his glorification on the cross. That, I think, that was already working in, again, uh, in the first phase of the Old Covenant. This is one of the things that uh, I think helps us to understand in what sense the restoration era, the exile and restoration, is an advance in glory. We have to start thinking in these more paradoxical terms. What does glory actually look like? Is it glorious, uh, for example, for martyrs to die uh, in the face of um, in the face of pressure during the Maccabean era, for example? Is that the glory of Israel, or is that the shame of Israel? And it's uh, you already have that kind of that dynamic going on in the uh, restoration era, and that comes even more sharply into focus when you get to the New Testament with Jesus going to the cross and, and this this kind of paradoxical character of what it means to, to exhibit the glory of God. The Gospels also reveal the extent of the
2: failure, the rebellion, the sin of Israel. We don't have anything like this in the earlier history of Israel, really. I'm sure, we have them doing syncretistic kinds of rituals and worshiping on high places. Uh, And surely also, as Paul tells us, those idols that the nations worship are demons. But now when you get into the first century and Jesus comes on the scene, their failure is just horrible. It's, It's almost cinematic. You have demons in synagogues. And the demons also in synagogues, I notice this just recently in teaching through mark is are talking they're talking as if they own the synagogue and they own the people what do you have to do with us uh jesus of nazareth which could be a reference to a legion of demons and it is sometimes but in many cases it's not um so what in the world is going on in israel how bad is their rebellion how bad is the uh, failure of their leaders the the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, so that this is the situation that Jesus comes into, and uh, when, once you see that, then you you can also recognize what Jesus is doing behind the scenes. They're trying to kill him. Um, Jesus is trying to, of course, bring life to the people through death. Eventually, of course, they're gonna they're gonna kill their Messiah, um, and yet he's at the same time he's he's in his teaching. He's restoring a proper understanding of the law. He's restoring the proper understanding of the history of Israel, where it's where it was intended to go. Um, and as Jim says in this chapter, he's restoring type and symbol. He apparently the Pharisees and scribes are not just moralists; uh, they're not just uh, seeking to be justified by their own merit or anything like that. But they're also they've totally perverted the Old Testament. It, perverted the revelation of God. And as Jim says here, it was a task of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, which I think this is one of the reasons why one of the vocations, one of the, uh, uh, the tasks that Jesus gives his apostles to restore true biblical symbolism and typology and to show how the Old Testament revealed Christ, revealed himself. That is so important when you're reading through the gospel so Matthew Mark Luke and John all have learned from Jesus and so there's there's not just the explicit uh Jesus fulfilling something that was written as Matthew often puts it but the whole life of Jesus everything he does is tied into Israel's history Israel's life the law the sacrifices the the prophecies all of it and um it's surprising in many ways but it's properly the culmination of everything that's gone before. And Jesus fulfills all of that, not just in some moralistic way of just obeying the law, but he fulfills everything, all the types, all the rituals, all the architecture. He's the temple. He's the tabernacle. He's the true Israel. He's the only faithful Israel at the time. And that's That's really helpful for me anyway, it has been to understand what's going on in the New Testament.
4: One of the ways in which I think his treatment of John's gospel and the movement through the tabernacle or temple is particularly helpful, it is taking up an Old Testament image and showing that it's comprehended in the work of Christ. I think also of um your work peter on the subject of matthew and the structuring of matthew according to allusions to the old testament working all the way through from genesis the very beginning of genesis to the very end of the old testament canon in certain orderings in um the decree of cyrus and second chronicles and it it seems to me that that framework helps us to understand this comprehensive death and resurrection of the old covenant and its law and its whole history it's being summed up and it's being recapitulated and there's a newness but a newness of something that is familiar um that movement through the temple i think is very helpful also as a paradigm for thinking about the different phases of what christ is doing and the way in which um through his ministry he's bringing us near to god and achieving in his work what the tabernacle and the temple figured forth within their
1: whole system. Yeah, that part of the chapter, I think, is really, um, the next uh, chapter 18 is really strong and interesting. I I had not read it for a number of years, and I was struck again with how persuasive it is uh, that uh, uh, he has Jesus on a tour of the tabernacles, what he describes, how he describes it in the Gospel of John, you start out with a number of uh, chapters where uh, a focal topic of interest is an, an issue of purification or cleansing. There's a baptism of John. There's the cleansing of the temple. There's a discussion of water and the spirit and and uh, new birth and cleansing with Nicodemus. Uh, there's another reference to baptism. Uh, there's the woman at the well in chapter four, and there's a there's a another a healing at a at a pool, so you start out with a whole series of stories and episodes that have something to do with water, and cleansing is either overtly or implicitly part of the part of the discussion. But then you move into Jesus feeds five thousand and he starts discoursing on the manna, and we're now no longer out in the courtyard considering the 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 labor which is a a basin for cleansing, but we're at the we're at the table. Of the golden table where the showbread, uh, the showbread is, and we're talking about bread and food and manna, and Jesus fulfills that too. He's the one who brings the cleansing. He's also the one who is the manna. He's the light of the world, so we're at the lampstand. So you go up to um, a certain point in in John's gospel, in uh, chapters uh, 8, 9, 10, that you're, you're following those steps. And then Jim suggests that in chapter 13, when Jesus cleans- watches the feet of his disciples, you're kind of rebooting and you're running through a similar kind of sequence. Uh, there's a, He washes his disciples' feet in chapter 13. He uh, offers an what's often described as the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Uh, it's as if he were before the lampstand. And the climax of this whole sequence is that Jesus goes to the cross. He enters into kind of a day of atonement, offering his blood for the life of the world. And also the cross becomes, in John's gospel, a place for elevation and ascension the cross is the glorification of jesus his death is the moment of his glorification uh, and the cross has uh, certain features of a kind of throne it has an inscription above him that declares him to be king and he's already been treated as a king mockingly by the by the soldiers before they place him on his cross throne and then john uh, john ends with uh, one of the one of the scenes of part of the resurrection a story has to do with you know, Peter and John duck into the tomb, and they see this setup in the tomb that looks like um, it looks like the Holy of Holies. You've got a slab with angels at either end. You've got the discarded garments of this new high priest that are inside that inside that sanctuary. The tomb has become a sanctuary. Uh, the The place of uncleanness has been cleansed and, and sanctified. So I, I just was again those uh, there are other details that could fit into that, but I was again struck by how uh, how neatly it all fits together I had I had forgotten how persuasive it was and I guess I should I'm reflecting on what what makes that persuasive in some ways it's just the cumulative force of the whole of the whole uh, portrait. So if you find you know Jesus talking about water, do you immediately go to the labor Probably not. Jesus saying'm i the bread of life he explicitly compares himself to the manna but do you go to the showbread? Not necessarily, but then when you see when you see this accumulation of detail, and the accumulation of detail fits into a sequence that uh, is uh, matching point by point matches a progress through the tabernacle. Uh, it's it's the, it's uh, the overall effect of the of the comparison. You look at the two, the tabernacle on the one side of the Gospel of John on the other, and point after point correspond. It's that kind of uh, that's the kind of logic that. Uh, That makes it persuasive. It's not a kind of logic that you can prove at any with any particular, at any particular point uh, conclusively. You might have John might use phrasing that links up uh, certain events of Jesus' life with certain things in the in the in the tabernacle. I mean, he does that at the beginning of the book where he says that the Jesus the Word came a tabernacle among us and we beheld his glory. Clearly, a reference to the tabernacle. So John gives us a clue right at the beginning what what he's about to do. Uh, but he doesn't do that all the way through and it's the the accumulation of details in this kind of parallel sequence that uh, that has a persuasive force right and in a detailed
3: commentary that sort of thing is often going to be almost lost among the details isn't it but in a work like this it it can really just shine out and as you say it can have a, a kind of cumulative force to it i'm just now kind of moving on i guess to the final chapter and obviously interrupt if you if you want to sort of uh pull pull me back but but um something I found um uh helpful looking at, at the final chapter where Jim sort of starts to um talk about the outworking of this um progression of revelation of God's glory in um really our, our own day and age kind of in in um kind of post-cross um history um is the way Jim says that the God of God's glory is, is going out and working through the world, and there is this progressive um, direction of travel to it, and yet at the same time, it's not just constantly onwards and upwards. You know, if if we zoom in in detail, we can see uh, declines. Um, just as in some senses, you could see a decline in the temple of. Ezra's day, let's say. Um, and yet as I see it, Jim is, is saying that very often there's this mix, and there may have been some aspects of um a period of history in which things have declined. You can generally find sort of some things which have progressed at, uh, at the same time. And I just find that, that whole view of things has some nuance, which I, I find very helpful you know it's not that we can look and see everything uh getting better at the same time everything's not getting worse but if we kind of pull back there is this this direction of travel that we can observe
4: it also provides a a way beyond frameworks that are straightforwardly progressive or conservative it recognizes progression and development in history but it also recognizes these continual patterns and principles that um always provide guiding um, rules or um, patterns to follow, can think also about the ways that there is something very sensible about this. This is something that we can recognize on a very basic level. As we mature as human beings, there are stages where something that enabled us to flourish in the past can start to become a hindrance to our growth. So as we're children growing up, we can find the shoes that once allowed us to run are now digging into our heels, and we're not able to do more than Hubble with them if we're going to keep wearing those shoes. We need new shoes. And so, that progression to new forms, I think, is especially important when we're thinking about times like the present, where there are dramatic social, political, and technological changes. And somehow, we need to remain faithful and recognize and discern what is useful what is not what to resist what to adopt and that sort of process of deliberation is not something that is well equipped by a straightforward posture of progression or conservation we need something of a a richer framework which i think jim goes some way to provide
1: yeah, I think also he he comes back to an observation or a point that he's made repeatedly throughout the book, and that is that at any moment in history, if you're in a if you're in a phase of tearing, the Lord is tearing apart the old order, things are in confusion, uh, you can't anticipate what's coming next. What's coming next is not going to be a straight uh, straight trajectory from what was in the past or what's in the present, uh, and uh, that. Uh, I think that's that's a good caution it keeps us from a kind of ideological commitment we have a, we have an agenda, we have a vision and we have to realize this the particulars of this vision. It loosens those kinds of ideological commitments And I think it also expands greatly expands the scope of what you can bring into consideration and Jim does that briefly in in the last chapter where he looks for signs of renewal and the signs of renewal he doesn't find. In his own only in his own corner of the of the church, he mentions certain movements within Presbyterian Reformed churches that he finds heartening, and he thinks that these are signs that there's a this this is a these are signs of where of a movement faithful movement toward whatever future the Lord has planned for us. But he also mentions uh, renewal within the Orthodox churches uh, and cites Alexander Schmemann in particular. He doesn't mention. Vatican II or the Catholic Church, but he could have, and he mentions uh, things that are stirring in in the Baptist world, or the charismatic. He mentions the charismatic movement, which is, of course is so huge in the global South. So, because we, our tendency, one tendency is, as Alistair said, to keep wearing those old shoes. We want to, we want to keep to what we're comfortable with, even after it gets uncomfortable. We still want to keep it, keep, keep the old things. Uh, the other tendency is to latch onto one particular order, one particular vision, say, okay, uh, the, the future of the church is um, to a global PCA or a global Anglican church or a global charismatic church or uh, everyone coming back to Rome or everyone becoming Orthodox. Uh, and uh, Jim's saying uh, "What's what the future hold is not going to be any one of those things. We can't anticipate it, and the Lord will upend our expectations uh, and we should be heartened by signs of renewal wherever we find them, uh, and not think that you know whatever our hap- whatever our tradition or model happens to be is the one that that needs to be adopted universally, and that that's going to be the that's the wave of the future.
2: And yet, it's so easy to fall into you know, to to think somehow that you know a historic, historical reenactment kind of church is. The answer to modern problems Um, so we keep going back to documents that are 500 600 years old Uh, we don't we don't think about renewing them or changing them or altering them confessions and catechisms people it's almost it can be a, a way of escape from the challenges that are before us in the modern world as Christians. So we can escape back into, you know, the 16th century, or we can escape back into a particular liturgy in the past and not make any changes to it and, and feel like somehow we're being faithful to the Lord uh, when we disengage from the rest of the world and, you know, live out our Christian lives in our, you know, ghetto communities that are, that can be at times, you know, historical reenactment kind of communities. That's not helpful. It doesn't help people at all. And it's one of the things that comes out in this whole book and the whole both through New Eyes is God is continually shifting and changing things and sending people out into new situations. Even in the Mosaic period, uh, the whole point was that they would be, they would be a, a light, and a model of wisdom to the nations. Uh, So there's a ministry there, there's a service there, the kingdom period, the exile period in particular, which we looked at last time. Well, that hasn't changed now for Christians. I mean, our task is not just to be, you know, as good as we can, as faithfully as we can, so we can vertically ascend into heaven at some point. We have work to do in the world. And Christian people uh, need to recognize that. And they ought to also expect that their sacrifice, their work, their their life of service uh, in family, in a business, uh, farming, whatever it might be, is that God is going to bless that and use that in the course of history, in the course of the development of whatever community we're in, whatever state or nation we're in. And ultimately the world, and God is going to use that to to bring health and progress uh, in the world. Now, of course, there are setbacks, but we all have to believe that, uh, as it says in, I think, what is it, Revelation 21 or 22, uh, probably 22, uh, the glory of the nations are going to be brought into the new heavens and new earth. That, And that means that everything we do has meaning and significance for the progress, for the course of history. And again, another reason why we cannot just, you know, retreat back into the past. Uh, We have to look forward to what God is doing.
4: One of the things I think we've said throughout this series is that um, Jim Jordan is a theologian of history. He really takes time and history seriously in ways that few theologians have. He's someone who deals with processes of maturation and glorification. He's someone who recognizes the fact that history moves on and we have to move on with it. And the fact that history is not just a matter of trying to get back to some repristination of the situation of the early church, but it's a a recognition that our growth is continual within this realm of divine providence. And we're going to have to constantly re-engage with the text of scripture within a different resonance chamber of the age that God has placed us within. And we're going to have to faithfully improvise in terms of these patterns and these principles and these um, examples that we have been given. But there is something of a process of wisdom and and glory to this. We're not those who have just been given straightforward script. We have to improvise and have to think of new ways of facing new situations. And this process of history in which we grow, I think, gives us also a clear sense of divine providence as that which orchestrates the continual development. It doesn't just leave off at the completion of the canon. There is that continual engagement with Scripture and with the truth of God's world within this changing history and context that occasions our growth in ways that we would not be able to anticipate beforehand. But yet, this is essential to the process by which we are um, conformed to God's image.
1: Yeah, and the the practical agenda, as it were, that, that grows out of this vision it's not a matter of trying to gather everyone into one one sector of the church or to have a a, a worked out blueprint of that we're trying to make sure that, that gets that gets realized uh having obviously we we do things because we have plans we have vision of what we want the church to do but it's what jim describes jim describes at the end as a, a back to basics kind of agenda what the church needs what will renew the church and we'll renew the church in Uh, and sustain the church in whatever direction the Lord happens to be leading us is this basic Christian stuff, teaching the Bible and teaching the Bible uh, in more and more depth, prayer, sacraments, worship, faithful work, faithful Christian homes, faithful mission and evangelism, loving your neighbors, ministry to the poor. The, The things that the church are, the basic things that the church is supposed to do are the things that maintain the church and prepare the church for uh, whatever future order it is. So uh, that's uh, obviously that's been, uh, I don't know if it's obvious, but I'll say it. uh, That passage and that that thread of Jim's thought has been really central to what uh, Theopolis has been about from the beginning. Uh, I've used that idea back to basics. Fred Sanders once suggested that I probably should be saying forward to basics because I don't want to go backwards. But what the church needs to be doing is focusing on, on those Fundamental things that the church does, that's the source of the church's life. Those are the places where Jesus promises to be active, where his spirit is at work. Uh, word, liturgy, prayer, mission, those kinds of things are the basic things that we do. Uh, and those, that's again, that doesn't involve having a uh, a worked out agenda or a template that we want to impose. It's uh, that get, that leaves us the flexibility. I liked Alistair's term improvisation, it leaves us the flexibility to improvise. Uh, and to react to the way the Lord is directing us. So I think the the last chapter is is pretty short. Um, Jim doesn't spend a lot of time. He spends a little bit of time sketching out the phases of church history up to this point, and then spends some time thinking about what the future might hold, and uh, what what signs he sees at the time he was writing back in the late 1980s, the signs that he sees of renewal within the church. But I think the overthrust of the last chapter is really the the thrust of the book. Because as Alistair was saying, what the book is about is historical development, maturation, glorification. It's a way of reading the scriptures so that we see the Bible through new eyes. But uh, by gaining the insight from scripture, it's not just the Bible that we see through new eyes, but it's also the world that we see through new eyes and history that we see through new eyes. And that uh, that renewed imagination renewed insight into the way the world works is what will guide and shape the way we go about our work as, as Christians. So it's essential that we have those new eyes that keep us focused on the right things, keep us focused on the future, and begin to see uh, the history of the church and the history of the human race through new eyes.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.